0: It's hard to feel embarrassed when you're alone. If you trip and fall and no one's there to see it, you get back up again feeling one way. You get up feeling a different way if you trip in front of a group of teenagers who remind you why you hated high school. Embarrassment scales. Which is why it's no surprise that my biggest public failure happened in front of an audience. A literal audience. Me, on a brightly lit stage, feeling the puzzled gazes of a group of strangers who paid to be there. I couldn't leave couldn't bail halfway through. I had to watch the consequence of my failure play out in front of my eyes and a whole audience's eyes. It's a story I've tried most of my adult life to forget. Later in this episode, you're going to hear it. I'm David Sadin. I'm a loser. This is a podcast about losers, people who ran for president and lost. You know, a blessing can also be a curse. That's the theme for this episode. We're going to hear the story of a man who was born, seemingly, with a halo around him. A charmed man, gifted with beauty and talent, and a family name destined to thrust him into greatness. But that halo, like a lot of shiny things, it was a lie. Because when this man failed, and saw the spectacular consequences of his failures play out in front of his eyes, and a whole nation's eyes, he came to reject what he once considered a blessing. This is the story of a man who had a front row seat for the bloodiest, deadliest manifestation of politics America has ever known, Civil War. This is the story of regret and chaotic redemption. This is the story of John C. Breckinridge. You, I think, are a doomed man, doomed to a political life. That's a quote. Reportedly, one of John C. Breckinridge's biggest supporters said this to him privately. We get a taste of this particular flavor of doom in a Cincinnati convention hall in June 1856.
1: When his name's introduced on the floor of, of uh, the convention, it goes wild.
0: This is William C. Davis.
1: Spent 13 years on the faculty at Virginia Tech and was director of their Virginia Center for Civil War Studies.
0: He's written about 50 books about the Civil War in Southern history. The first being my biography of John C. Breckinridge. That book? Breckinridge, Statesman, Soldier, Symbol. And in that book, he tells this story about the 1856 Democratic Party convention that nominated Breckinridge for vice president. He had risen up the political ladder from the Kentucky House of Representatives, to the United States House of Representatives. And suddenly, at the young age of 35, Breckenridge was being seriously considered for higher office. All the work he'd been putting into a political career was about to pay off. Or so people thought.
1: He immediately stands up on a chair and thanks everybody and says, he does not
0: want that nomination. That's right. He didn't want it.
1: Now, of course, the ethic at the time was the man does not seek the office. The office seeks the man. And almost all politicians then, as many do today, would say, Oh, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. When, of course, they are desperately. Uh, I think he's pretty sincere. I, I think he certainly had a little ambition to be vice president. It provided a decent income, of course, but it was a job without anything to do, essentially, except wait for the president to
0: die. Now, in the months prior to the convention, Breckinridge had entertained the idea. He was naturally ambitious. But after thinking about it, he'd made it known that, come convention time, he didn't even want to be considered for the vice presidential nomination. He just wanted to go to the convention as a simple delegate and vote for his choice for the Democratic nominee for president, Franklin Pierce, or his second choice, Stephen Douglas. But then the convention happened. After 17 rounds of voting over two days, it wasn't Pierce or Douglas, but a man named James who ended up getting the presidential nomination. Uh, Buchanan was a, how do you say? Stodgy old fogey. Yeah, okay. He had political clout, but he was unpopular personally. So now that the voting was moving on to nominating not just a vice president, but Buchanan's vice president, Breckenridge was likely relieved he'd been keeping his name out of the running. Until the next day, when another delegate rose, cleared his throat, and said, Breckenridge, for vice president. And when his name's
1: introduced on the floor of, of, of the convention, they, it goes wild. He immediately stands up on a chair and thanks everybody and says he does not want that nomination.
0: And normally that would have been the end. The voting would have moved on to someone else. But John C. Breckinridge was blessed, or shall we say, cursed. Because when he stood up on that chair and spoke against his own nomination, people liked what they heard. I mean, Really? Many of the delegates had never actually heard him speak before. Now, they were mesmerized, both by his manner and by his humility. He's turning it down? This just made people want him more. Plus, in a room full of people savvy about politics, there were several things these delegates immediately understood.
1: James Buchanan, when elected, will be the oldest president we've had up to that time. And the feeling was um, on the part of some people that they really needed a young man to balance that ticket. Plus, Buchanan was seen as a stodgy old fogey by a great many Democrats. He was electable, but they had no, no real great enthusiasm for it. And so they kind of wanted to, there to be an heir apparent who uh, had, had a greater appeal. And of course, Breckinridge at this point has served two terms in Congress. He's been seen, he's been admired, he's very popular in Washington. And he has the name, the Breckinridge name, which everyone in the South knew at the time.
0: And he's handsome. More about that handsomeness later. Suffice it to say that for all these reasons, this time, the convention only needed two rounds of voting to decide. Against his will, John C. Breckinridge was now the Democratic Party's vice presidential nominee. He was doomed. John C. Breckinridge's story begins on January 16th, 1821. And from the moment of his birth, his greatest asset was being a Breckinridge in Kentucky. Because the Breckinridges... They were not affluent. They
1: weren't poor. They were pretty much, I guess, in what we would call the middle or somewhat upper middle class. But socially and politically, they always seemed to run in the top echelon. And I guess it's because they were one of the first families.
0: His mother taught him to read and write. His father died when he was just two years old. Before his death, he had been a prominent Kentucky politician. So John's real father figure was his uncle, Robert Breckenridge. Robert had also briefly been a politician and a lawyer. Now he was a minister. Robert was a big influence on his nephew. So in the 1830s, this little boy in Kentucky was being molded into a proper Breckenridge. And
1: pretty early on, Understood that he should be a professional man, that he should rise in whatever business he undertook, in his case, the law, that he should engage in the public debate and probably go into politics at least avocationally, if not necessarily as a lifetime career.
0: So he did his duty, got his law degree in 1841 at the age of 20, got married a couple years later and started a family got an officer's commission and helped lead a Kentucky regiment in the Mexican-American War in 1847 and forty-eight. He didn't see any combat. And won his first political office, a seat in the Kentucky legislature, in 1849. He was 28 years old. And in all this, it helped that he was a Breckinridge. It also helped a heck of a lot that he was good-looking.
1: He's tall. We don't know exactly how tall, but judging from photos and descriptions, I'd say John C. Breckenridge was in full manhood, probably 6'2", 6'3", thereabouts. Slender. He had uh, deep-set blue-gray eyes that are described almost as being haunting at times. You know, a well-formed face and full head of very dark hair. He was clean-shaven up until about 1862. Apparently, an extremely able horseman. He looked good on horseback and rode horses very well. So he kind of lived up to a a number of aspirations of American manhood of the time. And that certainly helped him in his political career. There are descriptions of him uh, casting a a look over a crowd in silence, just casting his eyes over the crowd and drawing forth uh, cries and applause because he was uh, so impressive.
0: Who would you cast in the movie of his life? Have you ever thought about that?
1: Yeah, I used to. Uh, he has the stature, and now, now he's he's filled out a lot. But a young Tom Selleck uh, or a young uh, Sam Elliott probably would have been about the right size, the right voice, and the right carriage. Right. At five foot eight, I would not cast myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it strikes me b- beyond just his appearance. It seemed like throughout his life, people really were drawn to him. They wanted to do things for him. You know, he had this magnetism about him.
1: You're you're quite right. He had, I guess, what you would call a magnetic personality. It helped that uh, he was a very able speaker, completely at at ease in front of crowds. Of course, he would have been educated in the classics and in oratory. And I think uh, quite certainly he was one of those people who others naturally identified as a leader, and around whom they would flock, looking to him for leadership and guidance, whether he really wished to offer it or not. Sadly, after years later, after the breakup of the union, after the, the devastation of the civil war, he would look back on his career and regret that he went into politics because he regarded it as something that did not lead to the betterment of humankind. So there was quite a turnaround and I think quite a, a disillusionment. Between the young Breckenridge and his aspirations and the old Breckenridge looking back.
0: But before old Breckenridge looked back with regret, young Breckenridge was still looking forward. He served his term in the Kentucky legislature from 1849 to 50 and probably could have stayed there. I mean, it's clear people liked the guy. But his finances had taken a hit. State politics didn't pay as much as being a lawyer. And more so, he was grieving the loss of his seven month old son who had recently succumbed to illness. So in 1850, he announced he was retiring from politics. But if there's a pattern in this story so far, it's that Breckinridge's destiny was out of his control. To understand why his retirement wouldn't last, we should take a moment to consider Breckinridge's thoughts on the hottest of the hot-button issues of the day, slavery. Now, before he got into politics, we can only speculate about Breckinridge's views on slavery.
1: We have, of course, very little from him prior to 1849. Expressing an attitude or viewpoint towards slavery. He will make comments such that no, no one should be, have their rights taken away from them. No, no, everyone should have respect. He doesn't specifically mention slaves, but I think it's fair to interpolate that his attitude extended to them, especially when you take into account the general family attitude. They're, they're opposed to slavery, but accepted as an uncomfortable fact they're stuck with. The record don't advocate abolition, but they do advocate emancipation, voluntary freeing of slaves.
0: But in the late 1840s and 50s, the North and the South are arguing over how much slavery can or should expand into all this new Western territory won in the Mexican-American War. Attitudes are hardening. As a Southern politician, even in a border state like Kentucky voicing too much moderation about slavery could be politically dangerous.
1: So I think it's with that in mind that, that Breckinridge starts this shift toward a little harder line, not a harder line on slavery, but a much softer line about expressing any personal discomfort.
0: Whatever personal discomfort Breckinridge may have had didn't stop his firm support of a new fugitive slave law. A lot of slaves ran away from Kentucky in search of freedom in the North, this new law, proposed in 1850, made it easier to hunt them down and return them to their masters. But Breckinridge also supported another 1850 proposal, allowing California to join the United States as a free state, not a slave state. He believed that when it came to slavery out West, the people who lived there should be the ones to decide. These two 1850 proposals were key parts to the Compromise of 1850 which tried to settle these rising tensions between North and South. And Breckinridge's support of this overall compromise led to his further rise in politics because he was a Kentuckian. You see, the chief architect of this compromise was longtime Kentucky Senator Henry Clay. Kentuckians from all parties loved Clay. So when Breckinridge toasted Clay at a festival in his honor in late 1850, and when the crowd saw how moved old Clay had become, At Breckinridge's words praising him for the compromise and his career overall, and especially when the crowd then saw Clay praise Breckinridge, then embrace him, that was it. Retirement be damned. Breckinridge was doomed by Clay's coronation. A few months later, in early 1851, the Democratic Party nominated Breckinridge to run for U.S. Congress. This nomination foreshadowed the event near the beginning of this episode— when the Democratic Party basically forced Breckinridge to accept the vice-presidential nomination five years later in 1856. But here, back in 1851, Breckinridge didn't stand up on a chair and try to bat it away. He hadn't wisened up quite yet, so he accepted. The Democratic Party knew what it was doing. Breckinridge won his congressional election in August 1851, and in doing so, he flipped a longtime Whig Party seat. The Whig political party was strong in Kentucky. Henry Clay was a Whig. So Breckinridge winning this seat was a big deal for the Democrats. He began his congressional career in the cold Washington, D.C. winter of late 1851. His friends sent him some 18 gallons of whiskey to keep him warm. A few months later, in the hot summer of 1852, Breckinridge would memorialize the now deceased Henry Clay on the floor of the House of Representatives. The House was moved. By this point, Breckinridge was already a star. Now he was a bigger star. When he won re-election in 1853, Democrats, not just in Kentucky, but all over the country, were ecstatic. Democrats, and even a few Whigs. But, all the while Breckinridge's halo was blazing, so were tensions between the North and the South.
1: And I think as time goes on through the 1850s, that's going to be the dominant reason that he is more and more quiet about his feelings towards slavery, or that maybe his feelings towards slavery are themselves evolving somewhat. There's so little he left behind to tell us that we just don't know. I I think, personally, that he inwardly held on to his basic abhorrence of slavery, but it just was politically unfeasible, unpopular, and certainly self-destructive for a Kentuckian to voice such opinions. In
0: 1855, Breckenridge, once again, tried retiring from politics. Again, his finances were taking a hit, and he wanted to resume being a lawyer. Plus, the Whigs had redrawn the boundaries of his congressional district, so there was a chance he would lose his next election anyway. And for a while, he made good on his retirement. But once again, destiny was out of Breckinridge's hands. Because we now come to the moment that kicked off this story, that fateful convention floor just a year later, in 1856, when Breckinridge stood up on a chair, Tried to turn down the surprise nomination for vice president, tried but failed. Nine months later, on inauguration day, March fourth, eighteen fifty-seven, John C. Breckinridge was sworn in as the youngest vice president in history to a stodgy old fogey, President James Buchanan. Buchanan vowed to restore harmony between North and South. It didn't happen. For a taste of what Buchanan was up against. Consider this encounter Breckenridge had while traveling one summer during his vice presidency when his train took him through South Carolina.
1: In the same car with him was a fellow from South Carolina. The man's an officer in a South Carolina militia unit who is um, very, very boastful and full of himself going on about how the abolitionists must be crushed. Sir, we won't stand it no more. Sir, we'll have war. Sir, no, sir, we won't stand it no more. Practically a caricature. Of what these South Carolina uh, fire-eating secessionists tended to be like. And uh, Breckinridge tried to point out, t- tried to tell him a little story by, by saying, well, you, th- you think you're just going to whip the Yankees so easily. Then he'd tell him about how the uh, Department of Interior would bring leaders from some of the Indian nations in the West to Washington in order that on the trip there, they would see how big the country was. How well built up it was, how powerful it was to impress upon them that this is what they'd have to fight if they didn't make and keep the peace. Beckhamidge had no use for arrogance. And I think that's what he was trying to combat there the overconfidence there was and the lack of a realistic appreciation of just what leaving the Union might lead to
0: if they attempted it. South Carolina was the first state to secede, right? Correct. Yeah, in December. Eighteen sixty. If this fiery South Carolinian was any indication, an explosion was coming. 1860's presidential election lit the fuse. The election of 1860 also qualifies Breckenridge for this podcast because that's the year he ran for president.
1: And I think he very definitely does not
0: want it. We're all seeing the pattern by now, right? Okay, good.
1: I think he realized that 1860 was not the time for him to you have the rise of this burgeoning young Republican Party that is apparently sweeping the North. You've got the people in the South, in the slave states, divided between those like the South Carolinians who are state rights type and the people in the border states like Kentucky, Virginia, Tennessee, uh, North Carolina, who are less committed to slavery, but not committed yet to emancipation or abolition. The country is torn into
0: two, maybe even three segments. In other words, with all these regional divisions getting hotter and hotter, President of the United States was not an attractive job in 1860. But you know what was an attractive job? Senator. The U.S. Senate was a place where legends like Daniel Webster and Henry Clay debated the big issues of the day. For a guy like Breckinridge, who valued compromise, the Senate beckoned. And in 1860, one of Kentucky's two Senate seats was opening up. It was essentially his for the taking. So Senator, not President, was where Breckinridge saw the brighter future. And this was all academic anyway, because Stephen Douglas was the frontrunner for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Not Breckinridge. Fine, I imagine Breckinridge would say. Let Douglas deal with the potential hassle of being president. Leave me out of it. I mean, it's going to be Douglas, right? I mean, the Democrats won't do something crazy.
1: But then, of course, events take over. What? The Democratic Party meets in Charleston, South Carolina, and splits immediately.
0: Splits? Like, breaks apart? The more
1: moderates reconvene and nominate Stephen Douglas. Okay. The ardent secessionists go off on their own. Yeah. Wind up nominating Breckinridge.
0: In the movie... I imagine this would be Breckinridge's dramatic why-me moment. But it's a good question. I mean, Breckinridge wasn't a fiery secessionist. He was generally inclined to compromise, like the Compromise of 1850. So why him? Well, regardless of how Breckinridge actually felt about slavery, he may have been privately anti-slavery, or he may have genuinely come to adopt the hard-line pro-slavery position expected of him by his backers. Or maybe he didn't care that much about slavery itself, but because it was in the Constitution and because he believed in the rightness of that Constitution above all else, he felt a duty to protect slavery, regardless of his actual views. What the South saw in him, the pro-slavery white South, was a loyal Breckenridge, a Southern gentleman who looked good on a horse, who owned slaves. He never had a plantation, but he had household slaves and as a politician he was a man who backed measures to protect their precious slavery so from their point of view he was their man through and through it might have helped him if he had repudiated
1: some of the more outspoken pro secession backers but he can't as a loyal democrat he can't do that without repudiating people who have supported him
0: and when it came to his supporters breckinridge was often too loyal to the wrong people he would not see their backing their blessing as a curse, until it was too late. Let's take a step back to consider the political landscape. In the 1850s, we've seen the collapse of the Whig Party and the emergence of a new, mostly northern Republican Party. The Republicans were against the expansion of slavery, and in 1860, their guy was Abraham Lincoln. Now we have the Democratic Party splitting and putting forward two different candidates for president, Stephen Douglas for the more moderate Democrats and John C. Breckinridge for the so-called Southern Democrats. Now, as if all this wasn't crazy enough, another group of politicians decided they would form yet another party, the Constitutional Union Party. The Constitutional Union Party saw that if Abraham Lincoln was elected, the South would likely secede, and they knew the Democrats were shooting themselves in the foot by splitting, thereby splitting their vote, making it all the more likely for Abraham Lincoln to win and for the South to secede. The Democrats saw this too, but all attempts to repair their split and reunite under a single candidate failed. The Constitutional Union Party was all about avoiding any kind of seceding. So they ran a former senator from Tennessee named John Bell, branded him as the guy to vote for to essentially avoid rocking the boat. Are you following all this? We've got four guys in the running, three political parties, or three and a half, Lincoln, Douglas, Breckinridge, and Bell. The country was fragile enough. Wasn't all this political fracturing dangerous? The real danger,
1: and that's a few people saw this, is that this wasn't just now three parties of people from the whole country disagreeing with each other. It was the South against the North. And it allowed an irrational vilification of the opponents of each other. It was like having two nations of Donald Trumps going at each other. I mean, just bizarre things were being said about people north and south. But in that kind of charged atmosphere, people were all were becoming conditioned to believe bizarre things as politicians and others played on the public's emotions.
0: Bizarre things were certainly being said about Breckinridge. Imagine being criticized for not owning slaves. John Bell, the constitutional union guy used this line of attack against Breckinridge. Against Abraham Lincoln, too, ironically. This forced Breckinridge to respond forcefully, I got slaves! So with all this nastiness in the air, Breckinridge could only imagine what that fiery South Carolina man, who he had met back in that train car, would do when Abraham Lincoln won. Abraham Lincoln, who was, to quote one newspaper, a liar, a thief, a robber, a brigand, a pirate... A perjurer, a traitor, a coward, a hypocrite, a cheat, a trickster, a murderer, a tyrant, an unmitigated scoundrel, and an infernal fool. So everyone gritted their teeth and anxiously waited for the inevitable. With the Democratic Party split and the Republicans strong in the North, Abraham Lincoln won the presidential election in November 1860. A few weeks later, South Carolina left the Union. In the following weeks and months, more southern states followed. By the time Breckinridge was sworn in as a U.S. Senator, and we'll get to that in a minute, but by the time he's sworn in on March 4th, 1861, seven states had already seceded. Five weeks later,
1: shouting led to shooting.
0: After the break, Civil War. At the beginning of this episode, I said I would tell you the story of my biggest public failure, when my blessing became a curse. Here's the story. I did a lot of comedy in my 20s. Stand-up, improv, sketch comedy. I wasn't brilliant at it. Problem was, I would get discouraged and quit. A lot. It's hard to get good at something when the only thing you're confident about is your own insecurities. Anyway, this one time, I was in the non-quitting phase, performing a lot, feeling like I was getting better and I guess people started to notice. One day, a director pulled me aside and told me they were putting on a special showcase for some big-time TV producers. Would I want to be involved? I know this sounds like bullshit, but I'd actually seen this happen. By this point, some of my fellow performers had been on TV. So when he asked me to participate, I was pleasantly surprised. I was also suspicious. Why me? I can name a dozen other people they should have asked first, which, I mean, they did, it was to be a showcase with maybe a dozen different performers. Then that suspicion became cynicism. I figured they just needed a black guy up there to round out the casting. That's why they were asking me. But eventually, suspicion and cynicism gave way to acceptance. Despite the sense of impending doom, against my better judgment that I wasn't quite ready, I said yes. I regret it. Cut to me waiting backstage a week later, wearing a ridiculous wig hearing all the other performers ahead of me get their laughs, thinking, could I get those laughs too? I just didn't know. I felt like I was just talented enough to go out there and fail, but actually succeeding, that seemed borderline unreasonable. When I finally heard my name called, the voice in my head kept screaming, who the hell am I to get on that stage? But I also felt like I didn't have a choice. The show must go on. So I stepped on stage, and you can guess the rest. No laughter. Just crickets. I failed, big time. And look, performers know this happens. It comes with the comedy territory. But for some reason, this one hit me harder than any other failure I've had in front of an audience. Sure, it was the big-time producers sitting out there. No doubt my craving for their approval was way out of proportion. But it was also like the whole event was a cosmic joke. A setup to punish me just for being blessed with a little talent and a dream. Well, John C. Breckinridge was blessed, with good looks, especially while riding a horse, and the right family name, so people pointed at him and said, get up on that stage and do us proud. Then when his flaws confronted America's flaws, I wonder if he felt just as helpless to stop the disaster unfolding in front of him. If his dream was averting a civil war, that dream was shattered when the shooting started in 1861, which is right where we left off in Breckinridge's story. This might come as a surprise, but throughout the Civil War, there were a few slave states that did not leave the Union and join the Confederacy. States like Missouri, Maryland, Delaware, and Breckenridge's own home state, Kentucky. Because those states stuck around for various reasons, for the most part, so did their senators, including Kentucky's newest senator, John C. Breckinridge. He got that Senate seat he was after. So while Northerners and Southerners were now killing each other in those first battles, Brackenridge, who had just run for President of the United States, backed by Southern secessionists, he was in the Senate, trying to broker a compromise to end what he hoped would be a quick civil war. In the Senate, he would also speak out against Lincoln's war measures. As you can imagine, it was an awkward time to be a senator. Again... Rich biographer, William C. Davis.
1: He's almost a lone voice in the Senate by this time, speaking not in favor of the Confederacy, but against Lincoln's war measures against the Confederacy. And that's, in fact, what he was speaking about in the Senate on that day when Baker came in.
0: Baker is Senator Edward Baker of Oregon. Baker strode into the Senate on August 1st, 1861, in what would be an extraordinary scene, you see, Senator Baker was also Colonel Baker. He was just coming from Fort Monroe in Virginia, where he was training a regiment to fight Confederates. So when he walked into the chamber that day to confront John C. Breckinridge, Senator Baker was in full military uniform. Whip in hand, he walks in...
1: And lays his sword across the, his desk and gets the floor to speak. In response to Breckinridge. it essentially does everything but call Breckinridge a traitor. What's, what's the North supposed to do? When the South is attempting to break up the Union, when it is fired on the American flag at Fort Sumter and elsewhere, what are they supposed to do? And it gets pretty hot for a while, but Breckenridge doesn't take the bait, if indeed Baker was trying to bait him. And what is so wonderful about the story is what happens afterward, because Breckenridge then accompanies Baker out to his regiment's camp. Colonel Baker entertains him at dinner, And they're good friends before, and they managed to remain friends even after this confrontation on the Senate floor. It's it's a wonderful story. Baker, of course, will lose his life in just a few months at the Battle of Balls Bluff.
0: Hundreds were killed and wounded in the Battle of Balls Bluff. This was just a taste. The war does not end quickly. Reports of more fighting and more dying are coming in every day. So it's becoming harder and harder for Breckenridge to straddle both sides. At some point, he has to make a choice. Or maybe, as in so many other turning points in his life, a choice will be forced onto him. No surprise, that's what happened. At first, Kentucky tried to stay neutral, told the armies on both sides, north and south, to stay out of Kentucky. We don't want any part of this.
1: It means they think or hope of keeping Kentucky out of the war and maybe of trying to forestall hostilities by making it more difficult for the armies to get at each other. It's clearly impractical and can't last.
0: A Southern general violates this neutrality in early September of 1861, moves Confederate troops into southwest Kentucky, which is all the excuse the North needs to move its Union forces across the Ohio River into Kentucky.
1: And then the Union forces sweep in to start trying to take control of uh, Kentucky legislature. And the Kentucky legislature, which has a majority of Unionists in it, votes to side with the Union. One of the first things the federal soldiers want to do when they get into Kentucky is to arrest leading Kentucky politicians who are seen to be pro-Southern.
0: Politicians like John C. Breckenridge. He was home in Lexington, Kentucky at the time.
1: He and his wife were about to go to a wedding one night at the Phoenix Hotel in Lexington. And word comes to him that Union cavalry are on the way to get him. He immediately sends a warning to uh, others. He writes his note, hawks are about, meaning you know, the, the hawks are, are circling above us. He packs a hasty valise,
0: kisses his wife goodbye, and says goodbye to his children. John C. Breckinridge rides out of Lexington by night. So he's escaped being arrested,
1: but he now has a hobson's choice. He could either do nothing, which is not like him, he could have stayed back in Kentucky and allowed himself to be arrested as a political prisoner, or he can side with the Confederacy. You know, he, he would later say that, or imply that going over to the Confederacy was maybe one of the greatest mistakes of his life. But I think in retrospect, in later years, he saw many of his decisions between 1860 and 61 as mistaken, uh, but uh, sadly only after the fact.
0: So why'd he do it? Like, like what's his plan when he joins the Confederacy?
1: He's never really explicit about why he chose to volunteer his services to the Confederacy. But I I conclude, based upon everything else he has said and does in the next several years, and that he had done before this, that he still has some hope that if the Confederacy puts up a strong front, that maybe they can bring Lincoln to the negotiating table and still come to a settlement that will bring reunion with constitutional guarantees for the southern states.
0: Breckinridge was still quite popular in the South. Less than a year ago, he had won most southern states in the presidential election. He got more votes than Jefferson Davis, the man who was now the president of the Confederate States of America, the states that had seceded from the Union. So when he arrives in Richmond, Virginia, now the capital of the Confederacy, he's given a new blessing. They make him a general and give him command of a brigade. I mean, can you believe this guy's life? And this is a small detail, but it sticks with me for some reason. To mark the occasion, he changes his look.
1: He grows a mustache, which he'd never had before. And for the rest of his life, he'll be known by these huge, flowing, almost like handlebar mustaches. Probably his wife made him a uniform out of whatever material was available. His was made out of Kentucky blue jeans, which, of course, was a Kentucky manufacturer, denim in those
0: days. He would later wear the standard Confederate gray cotton. And what this does, especially the
1: mustache, is just makes him appear to be even more impressive and imposing to the men who will be serving under him in his commands as the war as the genius. I don't think Breckinridge was vain, but I think he certainly was aware that his face, his looks were a great advantage to him in getting done the jobs that he needed to do. Whether as politician or as a general, and interestingly enough, as a general, he proved to be pretty good.
0: How do you account for that? Was he just a quick study?
1: I have wondered that myself. I'm not aware of him ever reading any books on military strategy and that sort of thing. He was well read. I think he had probably read Napoleon's autobiography or books about Napoleon's campaigns. He was good at leading troops. He led from the front, which was common in that era, it was almost expected, which is why I say it's good that he was lucky. He just happened not to get hit. And he looked so good he, on his horse or even standing that men would follow him into battle.
0: The thing about Breckinridge, that halo, which would make people love the guy, this would serve him well over the next few years as a general. While he would not rise to the status of legend, like the Confederate general and hero Robert E. Lee, He would gain the respect of many of those legends, including Robert E. Lee. And broadly among Southerners, among white Southerners, Breckinridge would be considered a champion in the South. In the North, I mean, just imagine your former vice president crossing enemy lines and leading soldiers into battle against the very countrymen over which he used to vice-preside. To the North, he was a traitor. When the New York Times mistakenly announced his death later in the war, Breckinridge was still very much alive, but when the New York Times reported Breckinridge was dead, the gist of the piece was good riddance. Quote, if it be true that a loyal bullet has sent this traitor to eternity, every loyal heart feels satisfaction and will not scruple to express it. Unquote. Mic drop. That northern bitterness became contempt upon learning that not only was Breckinridge still alive, but in early 1865, nearly three and a half years after crossing enemy lines, Breckinridge had taken on a new role in the Confederacy.
1: The Confederacy is pretty dispirited by the winter of 1864-65. There are calls for Davis to replace his whole cabinet.
0: Again, Davis is Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy,
1: and there are calls on some quarters for Davis to be impeached and thrown out of office, and Somehow or other, Breckenridge looks like a very good solution to all this to Jefferson Davis. He's one of the most popular men in the Confederacy. Remember I said that more people had voted for him than ever voted for Jefferson Davis to be president. He'd served in every theater of the war except Florida. And so he knew all the army commanders. He knew most of the mid-level commanders. He knew much of the ground all over the Confederacy. He's very popular with his troops. He's been lucky. He's been successful. Robert E. Lee thinks very highly of him. And so Davis asked him to come to Richmond in January of 1865 and asks him if he would take the office of Secretary of War.
0: Secretary of War for the Confederate States of America. Four years earlier, the guy was vice president for the United States of America. And I thought my resume was erratic. Breckinridge's looks... His popularity and his name had elevated him once again, this time into the highest echelon of the Confederate government. And once again, Breckinridge was doomed because, by all accounts, the Confederate government was a mess.
1: Jefferson Davis, as president, was not an easy man to get along with. Uh, his cabinet had a lot of turmoil during the war. And most especially in the office of the secretary of war, he will have six of them all together. Davis essentially was his own Secretary of War. He would interfere, he would take over. It was very frustrating for the, the men who served in that office because they were always being second-guessed or overruled by Davis.
0: Davis wasn't the only problem. The Confederate Army was low on food, supplies, morale. It was a perfect storm. And once again, it seemed Breckinridge's popularity was forcing him into the eye of that storm. But after years of carnage and disunion, Breckinridge was different. This time, he wouldn't stand on a chair and refuse, like at that Cincinnati convention nine years earlier. He wouldn't grow the proverbial mustache, play the part he'd been forced to play, script it to end in failure. This time, he would take that failure into his own hands. Breckinridge had had enough.
1: One motivation, that may maybe the overriding motivation he had, accepting the office of Secretary of War is the fact that by this time there is no question he thinks the war is lost and that the most humane, the most sensible- He knew
0: even before getting into the the office that the the war was lost.
1: I think even before. It's evident that every life lost from now on is lost unnecessarily. From the time Breckenridge first takes office to the very end, this is what he's devoting himself to primarily, which is trying to find a way to bring about an end to the war short of just forcing the North to
0: defeat the Confederacy to
1: the last minute.
0: So he took the gig. Not to fight the war, but to end the war. Consider how Breckinridge deals with the inevitable fall of the Confederate capital, Richmond. Unlike Davis, Breckinridge was clear-eyed. He saw it coming months before it happened. So when the time came, he was ready. That's one
1: of the reasons that of all the archives of the Confederate government, the best preserved are the War Department archives because he started sending them out of Richmond in February, two months before the city falls, under Confederate Guard, with orders for those Confederate Guards to turn over the, the archives to the Federals as soon as they arrive. because he wanted the story of the Confederacy to be preserved.
0: While in the panicked days and hours before the fall of Richmond, with the Army of Union General Ulysses S. Grant advancing, other Confederate departments were destroying their records.
1: There are accounts of people seeing clerks coming out of government building just holding arms full of papers and dumping them in, in burning pyres in the middle of the street. One of the ironies of Confederate history is that the wind comes up and takes a lot of the burning embers of these papers and blows them off into the warehouse district, which starts the fire that destroys much of Richmond. So in a way, Richmond's consumed by the, by the story of the Confederacy.
0: Hmm. In the final hours... Breckinridge, Davis, and the rest of his cabinet escape Richmond, go further south through the Carolinas, then Georgia, all the while Breckinridge trying to convince Davis, dude, just surrender. But Davis wants to keep fighting, to go to Texas and carry out the war from there. Davis is kind of detached from
1: reality at this point. He's utterly delusional. But Davis simply can't get his mind wrapped around the fact that this creation of his has lost. Now, he had four sons. He outlived all four of them. And I think for him it was unthinkable to see this other offspring of his, this Confederate government, uh, willingly go go to its rest.
0: In Georgia, Breckinridge separates from Davis, leading a group of Kentucky cavalry as a decoy to try to lure pursuing Union soldiers away from Davis. You see, Breckinridge wants Davis to make it safely to Europe to avoid his capture, trial, and potential execution, which he believes will just turn Davis into a martyr making national reunification more difficult. But his decoy plan, it doesn't work. Soon after separating, Breckenridge gets word that Davis has, in fact, been captured. So Breckenridge keeps going south.
1: What happens, in fact, he has this hair-raising adventure of an escape on horseback and then by boat. They turn pirate, he sails across the Gulf Stream in a hurricane. It's, It's a story begging to be made into a film before reaching
0: Cuba. And when he gets to Havana in Cuba he learns the last Confederate army in the field, the last possible bargaining chip, which could have been used in a peace negotiation, has surrendered.
1: So he doesn't have to go any farther. All the Confederate armies have surrendered, but he still calls what today we would call a press conference because there are a lot of reporters from uh, from, uh, Northern newspapers in Havana at the time. And through them, he issues a call for all remaining Confederate soldiers and little commands here and there to turn over their arms, give their parole, and then to go home
0: and get about the business of rebuilding their lives. Breckinridge is kind of the guy who calls the whole thing off, banking on his popularity that people will listen. Though technically unofficial, it's his last act as Confederate Secretary of War. That was July 7, 1865. On December twenty-fifth, 1868, Christmas Day, President Andrew Johnson who were taken over as president after Lincoln was assassinated, proclaimed amnesty for all former Confederates. A couple months later, on March 9, 1869, after nearly four years in exile in Europe and Canada, John C. Breckinridge came home to Kentucky. When he stepped off the train in Lexington, he was met with pouring rain and a cheering crowd. After all that had happened, the people in Kentucky still loved him. Even a civil war was not enough to dim the halo over John C. Brackenridge. Power was like a cosmic birthright for the guy. All he had to do was reach out and grab the reins once more. Governor? Senator? According to one newspaper editor, he just had to say the word. He said no. And this wasn't like his panicked refusal 13 years earlier, standing on that convention chair trying to turn down his nomination for vice president. This was the calm dismissal of a man who had suffered the curse inside the blessing and had now had enough.
1: He tells people, I am an extinct volcano. He's deeply disillusioned with politics. He advises his sons that if he had to do over again, he would stay out of politics and do something that was useful for mankind instead. He has nothing to do with former Confederates who are trying to refight the war and the peace, who uh, just want to keep the animosity alive.
0: One of the few times he does go public is in response to the Ku Klux Klan. The KKK had taken hold in Kentucky by this time. He kind of goes off.
1: He describes the Klansmen as idiots or villains. I don't know where he stands, but I don't think he's fully in line with the idea of complete, full and equal civil rights for the freed slaves. But he accepts the situation as it is and, and refuses to countenance, as do many Kentuckians. The kinds of depredations that the Klansmen are perpetrated on black civilians. He says they must, the law says they're civilians, citizens, they must be treated as citizens, their properties and violate it should be theirs, their rights are the same as ours. And uh, others credit him with almost single handedly hamstringing the Klan in Kentucky. It will come back in years after he dies, of course. Reckonridge went through a long period of reevaluation of his own motives and his actions and what degree of responsibility he did or did not bear for bringing on this catastrophe on his generation. I think all of that began to add up with whatever mental anguish there was over what had happened to his country, what had happened to his career, and I think that probably affected his health somewhat as well. He's never really a a very healthy man after about 1872. I mean, he dies in 1875, he's only 54 years old.
0: When considering making an episode about John C. Breckinridge, I had a lot of doubts. I mean, I'm a black American, descendant of slaves. How am I supposed to tell the story of a Confederate hero? I worried about glorifying him, villainizing him, not villainizing him enough making him seem like a misunderstood victim? The same kind of insecurities I felt backstage at that theater, right before I failed, publicly and spectacularly. Those same insecurities started away on me while making this podcast. I guess they never went away. But weirdly enough, I found an answer for dealing with those insecurities in Breckenridge's story. Here was a man who had made mistakes, was blinded by privilege. He had flaws, regrets but in the end, he had some degree of perspective. I could be projecting, but what I hear in his story is the man who eventually learned how to puncture the cloud of his own halo, to stop making it all about him, and to stop living by others' expectations. And if you're hearing this right now, it's because I tried to do the exact same thing. Special thanks to William C. Davis. He's the author of many books, including... Breckenridge, Statesman, Soldier, Symbol. Another great book of his, An Honorable Defeat, The Last Days of the Confederate Government. This podcast was produced by me, with dramaturgy by Dr. Shane Bro, and additional assistance by Brian Waddell and many others. Music by Artlist. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a follow, leave us a review, and tell a friend. They don't have to be a loser to like the podcast. This is David Sanson, Encouraging you to hug the biggest loser in your life, even if it's you.